A consistent theme throughout the story of the Bible is how God's kingdom is not like man's kingdom. God's world is very different. In fact, it is actually our world totally upside down. Starting with the nation of Israel, God chose the foolish, the weak, the lowly, the despised to be part of his kingdom. In his world, the way up is down. To live, one must die. Powers made perfect in weakness. The first become last, and the last become first. And on and on we could go. This upside-down world is a central theme in the Gospel of Luke, where it's often referred to as the Great Reversal. We see it right off the bat in chapter 1 with Mary's song of praise, where she says, God has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things, and he sent the rich away empty. In chapter 7, Jesus says about a Roman centurion, not even in Israel have I found such faith. In other words, when it comes to faith, this pagan has an advantage over even the most religious people in Israel. In chapter 14, Jesus tells a parable about a man who prepared a great feast. But when the time came for the special meal, all those who had been invited offered excuses. So the man ordered his slave to go out into the streets of the town to invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Those who were often considered sinners and thought of as cursed. Well, none of the religious people those who were first invited enjoyed the banquet. And all those who came through the last-minute invitation did. That party was turned upside down. It was a total reversal, which no one expected. Well, there are a lot more examples of this great reversal in Luke, but one of the strongest is in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, found in chapter 16. I suspect most of you already have your Bibles open there. If not, I invite you to find Luke chapter 16. And in order to understand the parable, we must consider what comes before it, because context is always important. And in the parable of the shrewd manager that Brian just read, Jesus says in verse 9, we must make friends for ourselves by means of our worldly wealth so that when it fails or that when we die, we may be received into eternal dwellings. He says in verse 13, you cannot serve both God and money. Well, the, the Pharisees responded in verse 14. They, they loved money. And they heard these words from Jesus. And they responded with ridicule. They were sneering at Jesus. Literally, the, the word here means turning up their noses. Their love of money was an abomination in the sight of God. Though exalted by men, all that their love of wealth entailed was detestable to God. So Jesus proceeds then to tell the parable of the rich man and Lazarus 
which we'll consider in three scenes. Their earthly life, their eternal life, and then a conversation. Scene one, their earthly life. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed which, with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The rich man here was extremely wealthy, and he enjoyed all the benefits of his wealth. It's, we see here, this guy lived like a king. Purple was the color of royalty. It was rare and expensive because of the difficulty of obtaining the best dye from a very rare and expensive sea mussel. Under his clothes, he wore fine linen from Egypt that would have been very comfortable in that day. I mean, this guy had the very best underwear money could buy. <laughs> and he feasted on the very best food every single day. Not just special meals on the weekends, which would have meant he had lots of servants. Just like the Pharisees, this man was clearly a lover of money, using it to gratify all of his worldly pleasures to the extreme of excess. Well, the contrast with Lazarus could not be any more stark. As the rich man was pathetic in selfish opulence, he was pathetic in his need, a graphic picture of poverty and tragedy. He was so ill that he had to be laid, literally cast or dumped at the rich man's gate. I mean, this guy couldn't even move himself. There was no welfare system, so those in this situation were dependent on others to care for them. His sickness and malnutrition left him covered with sores, and he was so hungry that he would have gladly have taken whatever fell off the rich man's table. Jesus paints the clear picture here of a man utterly, utterly neglected, helpless, and receiving more compassion from dogs than from the rich man. And since the dogs were unclean, being licked by them would have made Lazarus unclean, which would have been even extra repulsive to the Pharisees, who were obsessed with keeping all of the cleanliness laws. Lazarus was close enough to where the rich man lived that he could have seen the entourage of people coming and going. He could hear the laughter and smell the aroma of the lavish meals being prepared. I think it's safe to say that Lazarus knew what he was missing. And the rich man had to have been aware of the pathetic plight of Lazarus as he would have passed by him every day as he came and went. But as one notes, Lazarus was simply part of the landscape, an unpleasant sight the rich man had to endure. And as their eyes would meet, he apparently had no recognition or feeling. He consciously chose to ignore the needs of Lazarus, using all of his wealth to indulge himself. 
Scene two is their eternal life. Picking up in verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. The poet John Donne has said that death is the great leveler. And in this story, it leads to a radical reversal. The poor man died and no one attended his funeral. Probably because there wasn't a funeral. He would likely have been thrown in with the sacrificial parts and burned on the trash heap. Although he'd been ignored by the rich man and was totally unfit to enter God's presence because of his uncleanness, he was carried away by angels to Abraham's side. Now, I don't think Abraham's side, or in some translations, Abraham's bosom, is a specific location. It seems far more likely that it is a reference to the eschatological banquet, a figure of speech indicating he was warmly received into the fellowship of Abraham, the father of faith. Now, the first century dining situation was very different than ours. They would actually eat while reclining on couches. I'm kind of glad that we use tables and chairs. And the picture here is of Lazarus having the place of honor on the couch, reclining, dipping into the common bowl, feasting side by side with Abraham. In his life on earth, Lazarus was a hopeless, miserable, starving outcast. And in death, he dines in luxury, in intimate fellowship with the very father of Israel. The name Lazarus means the one whom God has helped, which signifies that God identifies with the poor. We see in this that Lazarus was not cursed because of his condition in life. Poverty is no mark of God's judgment, and we see with the rich man that wealth is no mark of God's favor. For he also died and was buried. And we can imagine that he probably did have a funeral, right? It was probably big. It was probably impressive. Lots of people in attendance mourning in the way that they would do that. His corpse was probably still wearing his comfy undies and purple robe as it was laid in a beautiful above-ground tomb. But that was not the end of the story. As described in the preceding parable, the rich man did not make friends with his worldly wealth, and therefore he was not received into the eternal dwellings. Rather, he went to a place called Hades. Now, now this is not the lake of fire we read about in Revelation 20, but an intermediate state, which is the place of the wicked. It's called the place of the wicked, place of the dead, or hell. The rich man was in torment or anguish, and far away he saw Abraham and Lazarus. We note here that he recognized Lazarus. 
which confirms that he had indeed seen him at his gate. It's important to recognize that Jesus is not indicating here the geography or physical positioning of heaven and hell, that they exist within view of each other and so on. This is a parable which is intended to teach principles. Its purpose is not to give a detailed or exhaustive description of the afterlife. I was helped to consider Alistair Begg's insight that Jesus used literal terms in order that a vivid impression may be created. He's expressing incomprehensible things in comprehensible language as an accommodation to our minds. But in eternity, there will be no time. The spatial dimension will not even exist. But since we think in categories of space and time, Jesus speaks in these terms so that we can get a picture of what's going on. Scene three, there's a conversation. Verse 24. The rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Do you notice how the rich man doesn't even speak to Lazarus? He continues to ignore him just like he did before. He can't even imagine giving up his self-importance to talk to him and ask for help. The only one he will address is Father Abraham. And so he asks him to send Lazarus. And think of it. In hell, he demands a drop of water from the one to whom he would not even give a single crumb that fell off his table. He expects mercy to be displayed to him in the afterlife, but Abraham denies his request because it was both improper and it was impossible. Notice his response in verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in, his, in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. It was improper for this request to be granted because the rich man received good and merciful gifts in his lifetime. No, Abe says, you've already experienced good things. You loved all your meals, and you love being seen by others in your sweet clothes. The rich man exemplified Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your reward. And you Pharisees who do good deeds in order to be seen by others, you already have your reward and will not be getting one from your Father in heaven. Abraham proceeds to explain that granting this request was also impossible. Verse 26, And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, 
and none may cross from there to us. So in life, a gate separated the rich man and Lazarus. In death, there's a great chasm that keeps them apart. The rich man proceeds with a second request. Verse 27, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So, so this here is the first evidence of the rich man thinking about anyone other than himself. But there's still no hint of brokenness, repentance, or contrition. Just some familial concern. And note that he's still bossing Lazarus around. He's remaining as arrogant as he was before. If Lazarus can't bring him a drop of water, then perhaps he could be an errand boy to his family, providing an eyewitness account so his family would believe and escape the suffering he's experienced in hell. How does Abraham respond? Verse 29. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. So the rich man starts arguing with Abraham. I know you're in heaven and everything, but let me tell you that simply reading Moses and the prophets will not work. They need somebody coming back from the dead in order to repent. We need a miracle. That will wake them up. This really was a subtle way of the rich man excusing himself. His argument implied that he would have repented if a resurrected messenger had come to him. He would have heard Moses and the prophets, though, actually. He would have heard Moses and the prophets read in the synagogue every weekend, assuming he showed up between his fancy meals. But since God's word wasn't enough for him, he assumed it was not enough for his brothers. So Abraham responds in verse 30. He responds in verse 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. All that God said on this matter about repentance, the nature of forgiveness, how to be reconciled to God and eternal life has already been said in the authoritative scripture which your brothers already have. Now there's a lot in this parable that we need to think long and hard about. Far more than we can adequately cover this morning. But in the time that remains, I would like to draw your attention to four significant points Jesus is making in this story. So we can think about them and consider what they mean and the significance for us today. The first, wealth is dangerous. This is a major point throughout the entire chapter. We see it in verse 13. You can't serve God and money. 
Verse 9, the preceding parable, we see that how we use our money is related to whether or not we will be welcomed into God's eternal dwelling. And this rich man loved money. He enjoyed all the pleasures it could provide, and he ends up in hell. Not because he was rich. Wealth is not intrinsically evil. Just look at Abraham. He was extremely wealthy. He's not in hell. But as one commentator noted, the rich man slipped into the coma of callousness that wealth often produces. The coma of callousness. We must recognize that money has a corrosive power that is strong enough to keep us from heaven. I think I'm safe to conclude that none of us here this morning are as rich as this particular rich man was. But in 2023 America, I think it's accurate to conclude that every single one of us is wealthy. This is God's kindness to us. But it's also extremely dangerous. As Paul wrote to Timothy, those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pains. I wonder this morning, what is your vision of the good life? You have one. I think we all do. It's projected to us everywhere we look, right? What is your vision of the good life? And how are you going after it? Whether we realize it or not, pursuing our vision of the good life can easily become all-consuming and self-serving. And as we acquire what we want, we can easily become dependent on and find our security in those things. And all the while, God's not really in the picture. Our love of money has slowly and subtly overtaken our love for God. So whether you are a high school or college student who's just starting to think about a career path and you're just starting to imagine the good life you want to pursue, or whether you're one who's well on your way to acquiring what you want, or an empty nester or retiree who's thinking about what to do with all that you've acquired, Whoever you are, and regardless of how much you have or don't have, we must all be on guard against the danger of loving money. Second, hell is real. Even though this is a parable, Jesus provides us with facts and principles about hell that are true and extremely significant for us to consider. I'll share some with you here. First is it's immediate. In a moment, the rich man went from fancy clothes to fiery confines, which means where he went 
was determined before he died. And he knew that there was no opportunity for his brothers to repent after they died because it would be immediate for them as well. Hell is eternal and irreversible. Some believe that the unrepentant sinner may suffer for a while, but then at some point God will say, okay, that's enough, and he'll just annihilate their soul. But we see no indication here that the rich man will ever cease to exist or that his suffering will ever end. And there was nothing that he could do or could be done for him to get him out of hell. Even if he wanted to, it was impossible for him to join Lazarus and Abraham in heaven. The rich man would have been a good candidate, I think, for a place called purgatory that you may have heard of. But regardless of what any church may teach, that idea does not fit with what Jesus describes in this parable, and it's not supported anywhere in the Bible. The rich man was not in purgatory with a chance to get into heaven after he suffered a while and enough gifts and prayers and masses were provided by friends and loved ones. He was in hell. And there was a great chasm fixed so he could never cross over. Hell is a place of conscious torment. The rich man knew he was in hell. There's nothing here to indicate that he would ever be asleep or unaware. The rich man was in anguish in the flame, so much so that he longed for just a drop of water to cool his tongue, as if that would have provided any lasting relief. Elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus refers to hell as a place of outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The flames of hell very well may be metaphorical. And if they are, the purpose is to point to a reality that's even more awful than the fire we experience here. Indeed, something more terrible beyond words or imagination. Imagine this. Imagine something even worse than being on fire for all eternity, yet never dying. It's not difficult then to imagine why the rich man didn't want his brothers to join with him in this torment. Mark Twain said, I'll take heaven for the climate and hell for the society. But there's not going to be any society in hell. If there was, the rich man would have wanted his brothers to join. This parable destroys any notion of parting in hell with your buddies. In addition to the physical torment will be the torment of suffering alone, without the company of friends or family. Hell is a place for unrepentant sinners. We got to ask the question and think about why did the rich man go to hell? Well, it wasn't because he was rich, 
but because he chose to reject God's word. And in doing so, whether consciously or not, he was rejecting God. It's safe to say that he would have affirmed the Torah and understood that after death came judgment. But he did not listen to Moses and the prophets. One of the prophets named Micah said, And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. He didn't do that. He would have known the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. But he loved money more than God and he did not love his neighbor as himself. He saw himself to be number one and he lived as if he was God. Like the Pharisees Jesus spoke of in verse 15, this man's wealth and status were his justification. That is what he was trusting in. That is where he found meaning and purpose and identity. If he'd been living in submission to God's word with a heart of humble repentance, we know he would have treated Lazarus very differently, and he would not have gone to hell. 1 John 3.17 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Genuine love for the poor, those of other races, different classes, different religions, different moral standards, even different political views, and a heart poured out in deeds of service is an inevitable sign that you are a sinner saved by grace. After a lesson on this parable, a Sunday school teacher asked his young class, okay, class, which of these two men would you rather be? One kid answered, the rich man while I'm living and Lazarus when I die. But that's not how it works. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that you cannot live for selfish purposes in this life, disobeying God's word, and expect to live, in, live with him in heaven when you die. As John the Baptist said in Luke 3, if we don't produce fruit in keeping with repentance, we will be cut down and thrown into the fire, just like the rich man. Next, hell is a place unrepentant sinners choose and where they remain unrepentant. Many believe that no one would ever choose to go to hell and only those worse than they are will be there. And God is pretty cruel and unjust to send anyone there except maybe really bad people like Hitler who deserve it. We need to recognize that everyone who goes to hell chooses to go there. And it's perfectly just. Those who refuse to listen to God's word and repent of their sin want to be their own person. They want to live with themselves at the center of their life rather than God. 
So what does God do? We read in Romans 1 that he gives them over to their sinful desires. He gives them what they want. Hell is nothing more than what the unrepentant sinner is asking for. In his book called The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis writes, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. Hell is filled with people who still think they're number one, who will continue to pursue their own idols and continue to be their own God. Did, did you notice here that the rich man never asked to be let out? He's not having second thoughts. He's not crying out in repentance. He's definitely not asking for forgiveness. It's easy, I think, for us to imagine hell as something like a big pit of fire with people crawling up, wanting to get out, and God just keeps slamming the door saying, sorry, sorry, it's too late. That's, that's not the case. It's not like that at all. Yes, the rich man wants some relief. He wants something done for his people, but there's not even a hint of contrition or repentance as his attitude towards Lazarus, is no better than it was before he died. The old English philosopher Thomas Hobbes said that hell is truth seen too late. But he couldn't have been more wrong. As one preacher noted, hell is not truth seen too late. It is the downward spiraling condition of a heart that has rejected the truth all along. In the words of Tim Keller, hell is your freely chosen self-identity going on forever. As summarized so well, hell is your freely chosen self-identity going on forever. If you're here this morning and you're living your life apart from God, what we've considered here about hell is but a small picture of what awaits you in the life to come. Finding your identity in something other than God will not satisfy your soul in this life, and it will be far, far worse in the next. Jesus said that whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. One has insightfully observed that the ultimate reversal is not a rich man who ends up in hell, but a sinner who ends up in heaven. And because of God's amazing grace, that can be you. That can be you through repentance and faith in Christ. And brothers and sisters, do we not see here strong motivation for our evangelism? It's because of this, because of the reality of hell, we must share the good news with clarity and with a sense of urgency. For the day is coming 
when it will be too late. Third, the human heart is set against God. Why is it that Abraham told the rich man his brothers wouldn't repent even if Lazarus went back to warn them? I mean, someone coming back from the dead would surely get their attention. It would surely convince them, right? Well, in John 11, Jesus raised a different Lazarus from the dead after four days. How did the people respond? Some believed, but others ratted Jesus out to the authorities, and the chief priests plotted on how to kill Lazarus. After three days in the tomb, Jesus came back from the dead. Were there mass conversions? No, the Jewish leaders paid off the guards to tell people that his disciples stole the body. And most of the same people who did not receive his words before his death did not believe him even after he rose from the dead. So the point here is this, and what we've got to grasp is really important. Man's failure to repent and believe is not due to any lack of evidence, but to a willful, moral rebellion in their heart against God. Finally, God's word is sufficient. God's word is sufficient. Abraham said that his brothers had Moses and the prophets, and that's all they needed for repentance and faith. Think about this. Jesus is saying that the Old Testament is enough to keep us out of hell. For in it, God shows us his law, our sinful failure to keep it, the holiness of God, and our need for mercy, forgiveness, and rescue. And in the Old Testament, we see the promise of a Messiah who would come to die to save us from our sins and be raised from the dead. And as Gentiles today, we don't just have an Old Testament. We also have the New Testament, where God has revealed even more of the good news of how we can spend eternity in heaven through repentance of our sin and trust in the finished work of Christ upon the cross. As Paul writes in Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Have you received this word from God explaining how you can be justified by him? Are you living a life of repentance and faith in Jesus as your only hope for salvation? Or, like the rich man, are you justifying yourself and living with your identity in something other than God? If that is you, I would urge you to hear 
and respond to God's word. Repent and be justified by God through faith in Christ today because you're not promised tomorrow. And once you die, it'll be too late. In Eden Baptist Church, these words of Jesus here, the end of this parable, these words are why we strive to keep our entire focus as a church upon this book, upon God's word. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, not through the shock and awe of supernatural signs and wonders, but through the word of God. We can't convince anyone and not even the most spectacular and compelling evidence will ever change the heart. But as the prophet Jeremiah said, God's word is like a hammer that breaks the hard and stony heart into pieces. And so, both in our personal evangelism and our ministry as a church, let us continue to root ourselves here in this book, in God's word, and let us continue to trust in its total and complete sufficiency to change hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us the Old Testament and the New Testament, for revealing yourself to us in words that we can understand. And Father, I pray that what we've considered here in this parable of Jesus will affect our hearts, will change us and do the work that you've promised it can do through your Spirit. We ask, Lord, that you would guard us against the danger of wealth. Father, help us to see where we're perhaps being deceived where we are perhaps relating to money or possessions, dreams, goals, our vision of the good life as an idol. And Father, may we not be like the rich man and give our lives to that, that which will pass. Father, may we be grabbed and affected by the reality of hell. Father, for any here who don't know you through faith. Help them to see where things will end and what eternity will be separated from you. And fill them, Lord, with the desire for paradise, for comfort, for eternal joy in your presence and grant them repentance and faith. Father, we pray that we would recognize how hard and sinful our hearts are and we pray, Lord, that we would trust in your word, that we would know it, that we would love it, that we would give ourselves to it, that we would read it, that we would study it, that we'd memorize it, that we would talk about it with other people, that we would trust in it as sufficient to change our hearts and to grant us life. So, Lord, we pray that you would do all these things for our good and for our joy and for your glory. Through Christ we ask this. Amen.